Thank you, sir. Thank Please you. take a seat. Good afternoon. Um, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name's Mark Leipacker. I'm a director and author, and I'm delighted to be chairing this second of the Talking Lear platforms. Uh, this one is on the Gloucester family, and I'm delighted to be joined by Stephen Boxer <laughs> as Gloucester, Sam Troughton as Edmund, and Tom Brook as Edgar. When I say as, they won't be doing it in character. Um, um, first of all, how many people have seen the production this current production of King Lear already. Okay, how many people have tickets and are seeing it in the future? Which is hopefully everybody else. Um, <laughs> great, well I'd, I'd really, <laughs> I'd really like um, the guests today to be able to speak freely. Hopefully we won't do anything that is going to spoil your enjoyment of the production, but if you feel we're broaching on a particularly tricky area, then just put your fingers in your ears or something like that. Um, so thank you very much, uh, all three of you, for, for joining us today. Um, I suppose the first thing that uh, I'd like to know is just what your um, experience of King Lear was prior to the production? Had you been in a production before? Had you studied it before? Did you come at it completely freshly? What was your initial experience of King Lear, Stephen? I, I did it for O-level. <laughs> uh, so I must have been 14. And I, had a, I, I, and I remember the only, I remember the way I got round exams in, in, in those far off days was learning quotes and uh, so learning, say, you know, a dozen quotes and basing your essays around those quotes, no matter what <laughs> the topic of the essay was. And it kind of worked. It kind of worked. Got me where I am today. Um, but uh, then uh, I auditioned when I was 16. I auditioned for the National Youth Theatre. And um, for some godforsaken reason, um, I, I had a drama tutor in my village in Cookham, and uh, she suggested I did the no, 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 come let's away to prison speech from King Lear. And I did it, and um, I don't know, I, I can still remember it to this day. I mean, I, Simon makes much more sense of it than I ever did. Um, no, 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 come let's away to prison, we two alone will sing like... And I put on this old man voice, and it was ludicrous, actually, and, <laughs> but I got in. <laughs> and uh, that was the beginning of my theatre career. So it, it, it had quite a seminal influence, really, on my, um, my advancement. Great. Sam? Um, I hadn't... Uh, I, I, can't, I knew it. Um, I'd seen it maybe three or four productions, I think. Um, and I knew, obviously, like, the bastard speech and certain bits. Um, but I hadn't ever studied it or, or been in it before. So it was really exciting to, uh, to work on it and have it reveal itself. It's, um, it's a very good play. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who haven't seen it yet. Yes. <laughs> Tom. Uh, I did it at school for GCSE for English. <coughs> and despite that, I still enjoyed it. Uh, enjoy it now. <laughs> I remember it being a, quite difficult because we read in a way that we weren't um, divided up into different characters. We were just told to take kind of ten lines each. Uh, <laughs> and so I think at one point somebody read a line and said 200 at the end of it because that was the number of the <laughs> So... 
it was quite <laughs> difficult uh, to get the sense of it. So. Brilliant. Uh, one of the things I'm always fascinated about when you work on a Shakespeare play is, is the preconceptions that you, you bring with you, um, either through performance history or through some sort of studying. And I, I just wondered, the revelation that you talked about, Sam, whether uh, any or all of you had had a sort of preconception-smashing revelation moment that you didn't realise the play was about or your particular character was about and how that came about and what it illuminated. Yeah, I, yeah, I think like, Edmund's a very well-known character. I think the thing that uh, didn't necessarily surprised me but was interesting was how he was, particularly in the first half when he's talking to Gloucester and Edgar Kent, Cornwall, how uh, subservient his language is. And that was quite an interesting way which married with Sam's idea that he wanted Edmund to have a sort of Clark-like appearance for him to not turn up in a black leather jacket with sunglasses on from the beginning. And twiddle a moustache. That's yeah, right. yeah. That, that this guy grew and prospered. And so that was, that was an interesting thing to, to hook on and, and sort of has developed into a kind of this two-faced character, one for the audience, one for the people he lives with in the play. Yes. Tom, other than verse lines not appearing in the text. Um, the whole thing was, was a bit of a revelation for me, really. I, I find he's not the easiest character to, um, to understand, and a lot of things have to be joined up. I've always wondered where the madness comes from, and and uh, when he when he becomes poor Tom, uh, it's so. When I've seen it before, it feels so random and uh, and not connected to um, what's gone before. Uh, um, I guess that's because you don't see much of him before you see him as poor Tom. So. Uh, there are certain things that I found which I think have connected those, those two parts of his character, the Edgar bits and the poor Tom bits. You might not agree, but uh, I, I was quite pleased to, uh, to have connected, for example, the fact that he's Leah's godson. Uh, Leah himself has named him, and yet... He's the only person in the entire play who's not in the first scene at the division of the kingdom. Um, that was a massive clue for me as to uh, what sort of a person he was, how interested he was in the political side <coughs> of um, the world of Lear. Uh, that informed a lot, actually. Stephen, any revelation moments for you? Well, in a way, um, I was just playing the father of these two. So the, the two <coughs> um, character developments that, that Sam and Tom pursued were, were actually their gift to me because they're not how traditionally uh, I think I had seen in previous productions Edmund and Edgar. Edgar is the favoured son. Edmund is the black sheep of the family. And, uh, but of course, in the play, um, Gloucester has no scenes, no private scenes in the, in the first half with, with Edgar at all. And uh, Tom 
we, we talked about this a little in rehearsal, and Tom started developing this idea of a rather feckless boy who was, uh, he was in the court, but not really interested in the court. And so, in a way, that gave us a great journey to go on uh, later on in the play. It meant that it, 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 the play was a forging of our relationship rather than a relationship that had fallen apart and then had to be rebuilt. Whereas Edmund is patently ambitious, and so in some strange sort of way, uh, although, again, he's perceived as you know, the, this sort of wayward boy, he becomes, he's the ambitious one, and the father sort of projects all his, uh, um, his hopes onto the bastard son. So there's a, a, a kind of crossover of, um, uh, of the, the normal, what one perceives, what I had perceived as the normal relationship. The other thing, I think, was the, um, the political context, which Sam has sort of created for us. He wanted this to be a harsh regime, a, a, a tyranny, a which, which was about to crumble. And so the, the notion of him being a benevolent old uh, sort of bit of a fuddy-duddy was um, one path that one could go up. But it was more interesting that he was a yes man in, in the inner circle of, government, of, of what had been quite a sort of tight and probably fairly brutal government. And that, of course, when uh, things started falling apart, when Lear gives his um, kingdom away, then that means his position in that government is also uh, becomes in, uh, uh, is in jeopardy. Um, and so that those two strands of the political and the f and, and the family were, were sort of um, part of the the. the discovery process, I think, for me. Let's talk a little bit about this uh, ambitious Edmund who sort of um, makes the journey from a, a bureaucrat to, to leading an army. And uh, one of the things I always wonder about um, when seeing a production of King Lear is sort of, is sort of why now? I mean, um, Edmund lays out some of his reasons as to, to why and, and his ambition, but is there, uh, had, had you discussed what he arrives with before that first speech when he realizes and is he yeah. is he seizing on an opportunity and is that connected to Lear or what what sort of pre precipitates that, that well, I think it, as a whole the whole thing uh, falls into place um, there's a line we don't actually have it in our production but we're we're playing it mm. <laughs> that that Edmund has been out and away from court for nine years he says and um, I don't know what triggered my kind of imagination with it. I watched this um, documentary about uh, a guy called Lee Atwater, who the, the documentary is called Boogeyman. And he was in charge of the first President Bush's presidential campaign. And he set in motion a lot of the very dirty tactics of American politics, which are kind of normal now. Karl Rove was his protege. But this guy was very much an outsider from the South who chucked his lot in with the Republican Party because it was more of a fun challenge to get them into power. <laughs> and he rose, he arrived in Washington as this, who's that guy in the background? Who's that guy, he kept saying. 
and he rose up through the ranks, he uh, double-crossed people, and he rose to this position of power in, within the bush in a circle. He wasn't liked by Barbara Bush, she found him a bit vulgar. Uh, but he won Bush the election with some, at times, quite horrendous uh, tactics, but a sort of very charismatic honesty about the truth of what is going to win. And um, I watched this uh, documentary even before I auditioned, but when I started to look at the play, that triggered the imagination about this, this Edmund arriving in Washington. We, we talked, didn't we, about that there's a sense at the beginning that Gloucester's brought him along to meet other powerful figures. He would possibly go to work for them. He'll never rise higher than secretary to the secretary of state of whatever, but um, that he's brought there for that. And I think he comes armed with this letter, that the time is right. I think there's a sense, another thing we talked about in the play, how Edgar goes on a, an enormous uh, journey within the play. And that when the play starts, I think Edmund has been on his equivalent. And of course, once what happens happens in the first scene, it's like a virus in a computer that's, that's hard, the hard drive is gone. Mm. And I think he achieves what he sets out to at the beginning, which is to usurp Edgar and have his lands. I think there's a revelation in that scene as well, that hang on a minute, a sort of baby version of the Richard III smile and murder with us. I'm good at this. Mm. And then politically things start to happen that suddenly Edmund's driving a car and it's green lights all the way and within the end of the first half he's open by saying I will usurp the, I will, Edmund the base will become the legitimate son to becoming the Earl of Gloucester himself. And uh, I think a, an interesting thing for me that well, this ambition he has, he's his father's son. Mm. I mean, that's, that's what's going on. And um, I think in the second half of the play, I think, it, I think he starts to hit some, maybe some red lights, some of them of his own making. But it really excited me, the sort of self-destructive almost trajectory he embarks on in the second half, where he's just saying yes to everything. And that, that when Edgar arrives at the end of the play, it's almost a bit of a relief <laughs> that, uh, you know, because he starts by letters and, and you sort of see him kind of corrupted. He, he says none of this matters and yet it does matter to him. And what he pursues is what he perceives has been denied him. So there's a nice little conundrum and contradiction in him. Yes. And that, that speech he has at the end when he's trying to work out what to do with the two sisters, Albany, Leah, Cordelia, and he basically says, I'm going to have to kill all of them. Yes. And that is a different thing. He says, uh, my state stands on me to defend, not to debate. And at the beginning of the play, he's debating his state. So he's, um, yeah. Well, it, that's taken us all the way through the play, so I have no more questions. Yeah, sorry. No. I um, went... Off so that's, one, that's that. Stephen and Tom. Uh, the <laughs> there was um, a very interesting thing happened. Sorry. No, no, not Sam, bless him, lost his voice in the middle of the, the first yes. uh, half of the play in about the sixth preview. And Ambition. Carried, yeah. He carried on the rest of the play, in, uh, uh, or the rest of the first half. <laughs> um, we all, as soon as we knew Sam had to speak, everyone chipped in. 
Now, some people who we had friends in that night thought it was an amazingly daring theatrical <laughs> device. <laughs> and, but by that time, he'd been up. set up as, as, as so Machiavellian that his very presence was enough <laughs> to actually trigger the next bit of action. Mind control. It was, it was, it was extraordinary. But, um, so that what was your line? You said to me almost the first bit in the next scene was, not a word. Not a word. It's the storm. The gods have talked. Um, yeah. No, go and talk oh. to Cornwall. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think one of the other sort of things that uh, actors need to negotiate when, when they're looking at this is, is then, first of all, um, why Edmund is believed so readily. And I guess my question here is, is it the type of thing that you want to formulate that... Is that me or somebody? Um, that you want to formulate that... Um, is that something that you have to think about in rehearsals in terms of going on to play, or are you the, the sort of actor that just goes, well, he simply does, and that's all I need? That's the only information I need to play the scene. Um, I think it's it's kind of the the thing that was the the toughest to get, wasn't it? I mean, we. I mean, he he absolutely he tricks them both, yes. but he he tricks them by pushing a tower that's maybe already wobbling. I think mm. is where we've we've kind of got to with it. Yeah, it's. Um it is tricky, that, that first scene of uh, Edgar's where he <coughs> is, is duped by, um, by his brother. It's, it's such a short scene. And by the end of it, well, I mean, there's just no question in his, in his head that, he's, that his brother's lying to him, I think. So you can struggle with that as, as, as much as you want to, but... Basically, they say what they say, and by the end of the scene, in order for the story to carry on, he has to have believed him, so in a sense, it's out of your hands. And <laughs> if people don't believe it, it's not our fault, it's Shakespeare's. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, I think well, it's believable that their father is, if he's angry, that's not good. Mm. And I, that's what Edmund uses. I think yes. this production has helped that scene as well, mm. because it's a, it's a, we, we have a, a, a more violent father, and we, I think, than I've certainly seen before, and, and in a regime that is clearly, um, I don't know, dodgy. Yeah. Mm. So uh, I, I believe that the, the atmosphere is, is one of suspicion and um, paranoia, so uh, it's easier to make that, that leap. Presumably for you, Stephen, the, the reversal that you've already described in terms of the traditional ways, if you like, of playing yes. Edmund and Edgar helped with that. You've got somebody that isn't yes, interested and somebody that's following <coughs> his father's line, if you like. Yes, and the other thing is, um, if, is his superstition, his um, a, a, attention mm. to things astronomical and astrological. And uh, that's... Uh, so... I can use that to bolster up my credibility of what is going on in the world as I see it. But I think, um, I mean, from the boy's point of view, I mean, Edgar is very sort of passive in, in, in the first half, isn't he, in a way? And, and um, so in, in a way, Shakespeare does give you the clues, uh, uh, whereas Edmund is very active, um, or becomes very active. And uh, 
I mean, I, 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 I read the star pages along with everyone else. I <laughs> <laughs> um, had my astrological chart done for my children. But, um, you know, I don't set too much store, right? But uh, so I think we can take, if he, if he does, you know, there's a, there's a degree of um, uh, credit, you know, that he, he, he's, he's a credulous person. So I think if you draw on those clues that Shakespeare gives you, then the rest can follow. Um, we've, we've talked a little bit about the creation of the world of a particular regime of a despot. So let, let's go a little further into the design world of the play and, and talk about some aspects of that. Um, spoiler alert uh, for anybody. that Obviously, um, Gloucester suffers a very particular um, punishment in the course of, of King Lear. I'm guessing from the murmurs everybody knows what that is. Um, uh, and so in terms of that scene itself, in terms of the eye-gouging, the design of it. How much input did you have into that scene? How was that worked out? Was that something that had been designed beforehand? What were the other yes, possibilities? I think Sam had a, a very, very strong idea of what he wanted to do in that scene. And he wanted it basically to be a torture scene to which um, uh, uh, all ages can relate and the, our age is no different. And uh, I won't give away exactly what form the torture takes, but um, uh, take away the fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's not very nice. It's, it's horrendous. Uh, um, and to heighten the notion that actually uh, Gloucester is being forced to give information against his will. Um, so, sorry, what was the... Um, I, I was interested in how much input you had oh, yes. or, well, or had what, what the other possibilities were, if there were um, any that were explored <laughs> or was it... And th thereafter, we had a fight director in, um, and I mean, we <laughs> the blood bags and all that stuff comes in very, very late. It was very, it was within the concept of um, of the torture. It was very organic, and and but it needs careful staging because um, it's quite physical, and uh, I did get a few bruises. And um, Michael uh, Nardoni, who plays Cornwall, is a, he's a heavy-duty guy. I mean, he's, <laughs> you wouldn't want to meet him on a dark night, believe me, in Dundee. And uh, he's, a, he's a Scotsman, and he can, he can look after himself. And uh, he's a tough nut. But he, he's brilliant. I mean, he's, he really is terrifying. So I don't have any problem in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> no acting required. Uh, so that and the odd blood bag, and you're away. But um, no, I think between the fight director Sam and uh, the odd moving of a chair, I think that was probably my my contribution. Um, I think that it was it was pretty well sort of um, planned in advance. Yes, and Tom, for for the look of poor Tom, I mean, how how much inv discussion involvement? How did that arise out of rehearsals? Was it, was it pre-organized? Um, we had a conversation about uh, costume in general and talked about um, the poor Tom character as, as part of that conversation, really. We, uh, I mean, it's pretty much there in the text, you know, everybody keeps saying the naked fellow, so uh, a lack of clothes is probably the way to go. Um, and uh, the, 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 the line that, that 
gave me the blanket was, um, the fool says, were it not for that blanket, we'd all be shamed. So um, it, it seemed like the thing to do would be to have the blanket that, in a, and, and, and use it in a way that people would understand when people said, that's the naked fellow. So, uh, so that's what we went with. And also, you know, the fact that time-wise, in the, in the actual time scale of the play, he only becomes poor Tom at the end of the same day that he runs away from uh, Gloucester's his house, his home. Uh, so he doesn't have much time to, to change his appearance. Uh, but again, he's explained what he's going to do um, in his first soliloquy. Um, my face I'll grind with filth and blanket my loins and elf all my hair in knots. And so uh, my thought really was that he's probably just found a blanket, got rid of his clothes and tried to get himself looking as different if, so that if somebody notices him, uh, they won't think, that's Edgar. Uh, so, so that's where that came from, really. Mm. And uh, I have two very nice ladies that helped me put it all on. Perks <laughs> <laughs> the job. How long does that process take? Um, we've got it down to about 10 minutes now. Uh, <laughs> and then I have to sit in it. Uh, for a couple of scenes, and then away we go. <laughs> <laughs> we sometimes cross paths during the show, and it's quite interesting that Edmund's in his nice little suit. <laughs> yeah. Got a nice 20-minute break. Poor Tom just covered in <laughs> It's the you, play in action. You never wish the costumes <laughs> were the other way around. I think, quite, I think Edmund's I quite happy with <laughs> Um, talking about that, that time off stage, it, it, it's such a huge play and it's such an epic production uh, of it, which I know was part of the conception of it. Um, how is it in terms of maintaining the energy and the arc of your performance when a lot of the time is spent off the stage um, and, and coming back into what are these, these huge scenes? I mean, how do you maintain your performance, I guess, and, and the energy and stamina required for it? It's practice, I think. I think you have your journey of the character, but when you do a play, you sort of work out your journey of kind of like the evening, what time you've come in, warm up before. Um, and Edmund's an interesting shaped character. He's very top heavy. It was two big scenes, big soliloquies, lots of talking to the audience. And then he, uh, he kind of exists in the sort of shadows and you actually get a lot of the consequences of what he's doing. Um, so it's just... If you do it again and again, you sort of learn to, yeah, when to switch on and off and, and be ready to, I don't know, I, I tend to sort of, about the time Tom kills Oswald is about the time to get the boots on <laughs> and head over for Act 5, you know. <laughs> right. So all these little sort of routines, they're not, I don't know, not super strict, but it's just that, just finding that really. Yeah. Tom, yeah. you're nodding along, is it the same for you? Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically practical uh, for me. It's, um, most of my stuff happens in the second half, so uh, I eat a lot at the interval for energy, um, and I warm up uh, in order to finish the warm-up 10 minutes or so after the play's actually started. Um, and then I just keep my voice going uh, in the dressing room in between 
the scenes that I have that are quite spread out in the first half, just so that everything's, I don't go cold, um, from a, just from a practical point of view. That's me. Yeah, it's Tom. He, he can often be heard talking to himself in the wings, but <laughs> we're not worried anymore. But he's also, <laughs> he also was known was in, in rehearsal of having a Tupperware, he bring, bring out a Tupperware um, sort of container with a full meal in it, <laughs> in the middle of rehearsal. So I was, I was rather jealous, but... Um, it's the sort of concept of food as fuel. <laughs> it's always <laughs> porridge. <laughs> to the brim as well. Yeah, lots of porridge. <laughs> but one of the things, uh, what, what I love about Gloucester is, uh, it's a, for me, as they say in football parlance, it's a play of two halves. Um, and it, it, the, the, the way it falls, the first half is his, his fall from grace and his suit um, is gradually becomes more and more bedraggled and then eventually covered in blood. And the second half, he's out on the heath. So there's a wonderful arc for me in terms of the journey. And also, strangely enough, he doesn't have much time off, which I, I like, you know, we all, it's just fun being busy, really. Mm. So I don't have much time to, to sort of contemplate uh, the next scene, just enough to sort of have a drink of water. And I, I think there's about, Ten minutes in the first half when I could just about do the Guardian Sudoku, <laughs> and uh, that's that's yeah. it really. You want um, the the box set gap? That's what you want. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have that. fifty no, minutes no. to get an episode or something. <laughs> in. It doesn't quite work out. Really. Um, let's go a little more. You, you just talked about the the scene out on the on the heath. I wondered if we could go a little bit more into the rehearsal process itself and. Um, this, the scene between Gloucester and Edgar and Lear, the mad scene, if you like, or, but certainly the, the sort of um, ledge scene, I suppose. Um, uh, Sam works in a way where there are, the whole company is around all of the time and, uh, and, and watching and, and sort of uh, be, being around. And I wondered what that's like when the scene itself is so delicate and so intimate between Gloucester and Edgar and later Lear um, up on that ledge. The pressure of that, or the interest of that, does it magnify what's going on? Do you not worry about it at all? It, How does it feed yeah. into the rehearsal process? It, it could be, but it's, it's such a lovely giving company, I have to say, that it, it, was, it was a joy, actually, to, do, to try things out in that circle and have people chipping in as well um, and um, just throwing it around. Um, and it's a, very, it's a very generous company. And... I found it nothing but stimulating. And uh, in fact, that the whole of that more, the, the, the Heath scene in, on, on the hill has hardly changed since we first blocked it. Um, there was something wonderfully organic, wasn't there, about its development. And um, I had the, I had the um, advantage and the privilege and good fortune to be blindfolded all the way through. So I didn't have to worry about blocking. And I can't tell you what bliss that was. <laughs> so I just let Tom just take me wherever he wanted. <laughs> I was like a dog on a lead. So I was exonerated from this great burden of sort of where to go and what to do, what to do with your hands. Um, just be blind. And I, I, um, and I, I did a bit of little research into what it's like being blind and uh, what the, 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 the 
the heightened senses that you have and the fear of noise, the fear of strange liquids on the floor, um, the fear of thunder because it's not preceded by lightning. Um, quite a little interesting thing. So I, I had quite a lot to play off. And um, so in a way, I was also blissfully unaware of the people around the circle mm. because I actually kept my eyes closed. It, it was a fun way to rehearse. I was terrified. <laughs> I was terrified, I think, only the first time uh, we went, I went into the circle just because the character turns up so late in the play um, that we'd had about four days of everybody being brilliant uh, before <laughs> I turned up. And uh, <laughs> that, that I found quite difficult the first time. But um, luckily, as you say, the company was wonderful. And um, Stanley Townsend was the guy who was with me. And he was always checking to see if I was all right. Ready, Tom? You all right? Yep. yep. Thanks, Dan. And it made a huge difference that. So uh, after that, it, because that was the form in the room, it, it was fine. You know, you you were talking really to to Sam. Um, he was talking to you about what he liked and what he liked a bit less. Uh, and you were incorporating ideas as they came from whoever was there. So it kind of. It was, it, was, it was much easy. It was very easy, very quickly. Mm. But initially, utterly terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it makes you very aware of the, the bits you aren't in. I mean, I found it very useful as, as, as Edmund, particularly the, the shape of the part, how he sort of, most of his stuff is happening off stage in the second half, to see the consequences of what he does, to see how that fits in. Learn as much about Edmund watching Edgar and Gloucester mm. in a way as as the scenes themselves, which is, was really interesting. And I think it fed into that, the wheel coming full circle, the connection that the two brothers have on this journey that they kind of swap and then they're back to where they were. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was something that really was, was very helpful for me as well in the way that he, he, he worked. We, we went into the theatre having, I think, run it maybe five times in, in the rehearsal room, uh, around the table, in the, in the circle, on the markup. Um, so you were fully aware of your place within the thing as a whole, and uh, how you related to the um, to the story. It was I've never done that before, and that was really really useful. And it really um, underlined the the company ethos. I think it's a it's a company production, and I think. That's a tribute to Sam, and it's a tribute to Simon as well, who I know is here somewhere. Uh, who uh, uh, the, you, I have seen some Lears where uh, they <laughs> they decide it's all about them, and uh, this is not one of those productions. It's it's uh, it's about a political state and a, and a familial state, mm. and uh, how they intertwine and fall apart, and. Um, so I, I think that process w was part of the, 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 the binding cement yeah. for this production. And uh, I, hope it, I hope it shows. You really see as well the, how brilliant con constructed the play is. But I think the, the moment where Edmund is uh, with Goneril, kissing Goneril and getting up to whatever they are, I don't know. 
Yeah, it's got a bit weird that now. I don't know what's going on. Um, <laughs> but it comes straight after Edgar agreeing to take his father to the cliffs of Dover, and then up come. That's where the power of the moments with Edmund and Goneril are, is that you suddenly see where these two brothers are, and you see what Edmund's done, and yet what he's now enjoying. Yes. It's pretty despicable, but it's, a, it's great to see how Shakespeare's got all these fantastic characters and how he uses, he has some of them on stage for a bit, brings them off, brings the other guy on. It's just genius, isn't it? And so, having talked about the, the company itself, what difference does an audience make in terms of moving the, the show into the theatre and um, particularly in the soliloquies, I suppose, can you mm. feel a difference in the audience from night to night and what particular dimension or characteristic do they add to the production? Well, I think, I mean, it's massive for... For Edmund, I mean, the first few previews was just terrifying, basically, and <laughs> just feeling. I, I hopefully it wasn't, but you just, it's just getting used to it, basically, because it's a huge uh, kind of most of his character is is that. So of course you're pretending to talk to an audience. I mean, it was helpful having always a full rehearsal room. It gave you people to speak to, but it definitely took a good few previews to just. If anything else, just technically just relax and be able to just breathe before starting. Um, and then also to learn how, how much you realise the audience are up for being enjoying what's going on, I think, has been mm. the big discovery. And once you start to feel that, then you get bolder. And, and uh, yeah, it's to go from sort of kind of pretending to talk to an audience to actually talking to them. And that's really starting to rock now which is which mm. is great yeah th th quite often you get told about the Olivier it's uh, it's very difficult to play it's very difficult to play it's a huge room it's a huge room and I, I sort of I always start by by giving a bit too much um, well I want to make sure I'm giving enough volume um, and and uh, after a little while it's it's nice to start playing with um, how much how little volume you can give for it to still be for it to still yeah. get to the back of the space um, uh, and hopefully you know kind of draw people in that way uh, so you're not just giving it big licks you can you can kind of you know play with it a bit more um, yeah. and and that that, that does take a while in that in that space. Just a few a few shows, you know, just to sort of mm. sort of calibrate everything. And yeah, and to hear it. Mm. Mm. Well, well, we've skipped we a step, you. but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Given that we were talking about an audience, let's yeah. go with that. How can you? Uh, uh, what process do you go through to letters. ensure that you're heard yeah. at the back of the? Couldn't hear you. Or emails, I think it is now, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, I mean they let you know. Uh, I think we've been. Uh, I don't know actually. Uh, we haven't had. I haven't had any messages coming coming back. So, not speak up. I will probably get too loud. Um, <laughs> do you do but any work with the, the voice department here in terms of handling the space? Is it? Yes. I mean, uh, in in rehearsals, we all had a go on the stage with Jeanette Nelson, who's our wonderful voice coach, and uh, so she gives you clues. She moves around the auditorium. Says, oh, "I can hear you here, but I can't hear you there." That's too low. That's all right, doing it that low, as long as you follow through to the end of the sentence and you hear the consonant <laughs> at the end of the sentence. That's the and big one. They're the things that actually make, make it travel. But, of course, 
you, you don't necessarily, when you first go in, have the confidence to, to, to do that. So it takes time, as you, uh, Tom and Sam have said, you know, to modulate it. But actually, you can, be, um, you can be very quiet in there. But as long as you're intense and you follow through to the end of the line, then uh, you will be heard, by and large. Um, but uh, I mean, I've got a few slightly hard of hearing friends. I've put them in the front row. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I can tell as well because I can hear that I'm producing a different sound. You know, like at the, be at the beginning, like the first couple of shows, it's not strained, but it's not, it's not as clear. And I can feel it when I'm doing it. And I know that it's, it's, got, more, it's got more chance of traveling if it's being produced well. And, and, and to produce it well takes a few, a few shows. Mm. But then I'm guessing. <laughs> so, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's very much what previews are for, to just yeah. test the wicket out. Yeah, yeah. If you wouldn't mind joining me in thanking <laughs> Stephen Butzer, Sam Troughton and Tom Brooks.